Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Weekend Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And let's call this episode 298. And uh, I decided to get a little nostalgic there. There's the old bumper music. Haven't played that in a while. Okay, so I've mentioned this on the show before. You would think that after doing so many episodes that I'd be running out of topics to talk about, but it's actually quite the contrary. I feel like I'm drowning in show ideas. Right now I'm working on a kind of mini-episode on Delois or Delois's Ape, uh, a Baphomet documentary, and two more Peterson episodes. Uh, but I'm putting those on the back burner this week. Last week, I kind of glibly joked in passing that one reason that I haven't been tackling the recent Catholic sex abuse scandal on the show is that, sadly, abuse in the Catholic Church has become so prevalent or expected that it hardly seems like news anymore that would be akin to announcing, hey, breaking news, the sky's blue. But my conscience keeps telling me that I should chime in And I think the thing that really made me say, okay, it's time to address this on the show, was a story I kept hearing about on the local news while at work recently. Apparently, there's been calls for Pope Francis to resign. Pope Frank, cuddly papal nice guy, the people's pontiff, despite paying some lip service to the problem of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church, Frank seems to still be dropping the ball. And one of those calling for his resignation is actually former Vatican ambassador, Archbishop Carlo Maria. And uh, I've heard people pronounce it Vagano, but I've also heard it pronounced Villano. Um, So, either or. A very well-respected bigwig in the church. Apparently, he told Pope Francis about allegations of sexual abuse against then-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick five years ago, but the Pope did uh, nothing about it, it seems. So here's a quote from Vigliano. Uh, Don't know how I did with that, probably butchered it. Uh, Via CNN. The Pope learned about it from me on June 23, 2013, and continued to cover for him. Pope Francis must be the first to set a good example for cardinals and bishops who covered up McCarrick's abuses and resign along with all of them. And to put this in some context, here's a brief paragraph from the New York Times that explains this McCarrick situation. And this is from back on July 28th. And just to give credit where credit is due, it looks like the article was written by Elisabetta Pavaleto and Sharon Otterman. Pope Francis has accepted the resignation of Cardinal Theodore E. McCarrick, the former Archbishop of Washington from the College of Cardinals, ordering him to a quote-unquote life of prayer and penance after allegations that the Cardinal sexually abused minors and adult seminarians over the course of decades, the Vatican announced on Saturday. Acting swiftly to contain a widening sex abuse scandal at the highest levels of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope officially suspended the Cardinal from the exercise of any public ministry after receiving his resignation letter Friday evening. And so to reiterate, according to Vignano, Pope Francis knew about the situation for years prior to McCarrick's resignation, but did nothing about it. 
And comparatively speaking, the Carrick story almost seems uh, G-rated when contrasted with some of the stories coming out of the uh, Pennsylvania scandal. And speaking of that, I think that's obviously what's brought the topic of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church to the fore once again. Recently, a grand jury report revealed that more than 300 priests across six Pennsylvanian dioceses uh, had been credibly accused of sexually abusing more than a thousand children. And I think the accusation spans seven decades, but still 300 priests, a thousand kids. And one of the more disturbing stories coming out of this scandal involves priests giving certain child victims special gold crosses to wear around their necks so other predator priests could identify them. Supposedly, these necklaces were given to victims who were more easily preyed upon. Here's some bullet points from uh, NBC News. A ring of predatory priests that allegedly manufactured child pornography on diocese property and use whips, violence, and sadism on their victims. That same group of priests gave boys they favored gold cross necklaces, which the report states were a signal to other predators that the children were optimal targets for further victimization. One priest allegedly abused five sisters in a single family, despite prior abuse reports that were never acted on. The priest collected samples of the girl's urine, pubic hair, and menstrual blood, according to the report. Unbelievable. Uh, here's the next bullet point. Lack of discipline for priests who admitted to abuse. A priest who confessed to raping at least 15 boys, some as young as seven. A bishop later said that the priest was, quote-unquote, a person of candor and sincerity, and complimented him for the progress he has made in controlling his, quote-unquote, addiction. A priest who quit after years of child abuse complaints and asked for, and received, a reference letter for his next job at Walt Disney World. Talk about laying the fox into the hen house. So it goes without saying that this is sick, abhorrent, stomach-turning stuff. And so stories about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church have been around as long as I can remember. It seems like I grew up hearing about them. And I'm in the Boston area, and I can remember hearing about cases like uh, that of Father Porter or uh, Gagan as a kid. And yes, Gagan, I remember there were plenty of juvenile jokes <laughs> regarding that name. But here's a couple of excerpts on both of them. So John Gagan. Uh, John J. Gagan was an American Roman Catholic priest and serial child rapist. The Boston Globe's coverage of Gagan's abuse opened the door for public knowledge of the sexual abuse scandal. And then there's Father Porter, James Porter was a Roman Catholic priest who was convicted of molesting 28 children. He admitted to sexually abusing at least 100 children of both sexes over a period of 30 years starting in the 1960s. And I believe Gagan was eventually killed in prison. I remember when the news broke, my Catholic mother actually expressed sympathy for him, but I couldn't be bothered to care. He did die a rather brutal death. I believe he was strangled and stomped to death. What a cherry episode this is. And sure, on some level, it makes me wince thinking of anyone having to endure that kind of violent death. But I wasn't going to shed any tears for a serial child rapist. 
And I wanted to stop to say that while I was working on this episode last night, I heard it mentioned on another show that supposedly the Catholic Church spent $2 million on trying to block child sex abuse law reform. And the claim was so shocking to me, despite how jaded I am from being inundated by these Catholic Church sex abuse stories, that I wanted to vet it. And apparently it's a real story. I was able to trace it back to a 2016 New York Daily News article. So it reads, exclusive Catholic Church spent $2 million on major NY lobbying firms to block child sex law reform. Albany. Not leaving it to divine chance, the state Catholic conference has turned in recent years to some of Albany's most well-connected and influential lobby firms to help block a bill that would make it easier for child sex abuse victims to seek justice. The Catholic conference, headed by Timothy Cardinal Dolan, has used Wilson, Elser, Moskowitz, Edelman, and Dicker, Patricia Lynch and Associates, Hank Scheinkopf, and Mark Bahan, or Bahan Communications to lobby against the Child Victims Act, as well as for or against other measures. All told, the conference spent more than $2.1 million on lobbying from 2007 through the end of 2015, state records show. That does not include the conference's own internal lobbying team. So once again, the plot sickens. So I was saying how it seems like I've been hearing these stories all my life. And I can remember even as a relatively young person in my late teens or early 20s, thinking to myself how just the basic situation seemed like a recipe for disaster. You have grown men sworn to celibacy, basically trying to live in an arguably unnatural state of sexual denial. Maybe many of them choosing the priesthood in the first place in some attempt to escape or suppress their possibly deviant sexual urges, and you then have these people spending time with children. In some cases, could it be that the predators are drawn to the priesthood because they at least in part see it as a good way to seek out prey while hiding amongst the sheep? I don't know. I'm not sure how conscious the decision is, but the end result is the same. You have grown men sexually preying on children. And I want to stop to emphasize the fact that we should make a clear distinction between homosexuality and pedophilia. It should go without saying, but I think it's a line that often gets blurred when discussing this topic because we're talking about grown men sexually preying on young boys and sometimes the subject of closeted men in the priesthood comes up. But it should be stated clearly that if you're attracted to or sexually preying upon young boys, you're not gay, you're a pedophile. According to my thinking, homosexuality is being attracted to people your own age or adults who are of the same sex. If a man sexually preys on a young girl, we don't demonize heterosexuality. And we shouldn't demonize homosexuality when people prey on children who happen to be of the same sex. There may be some cases like McCarrick, who we discussed earlier, who I think was targeting seminarians and boys or young men in their late teens. In cases like that, yeah, maybe it's a case of a lech who happens to be homosexual, but people preying on young children, that's pedophilia. And as illustrated earlier in those disturbing bullet points I read, the victims aren't always male. Plenty of young girls were victimized as well. 
So usually whenever this issue comes to the fore, we'll hear people suggest that one of the biggest possible solutions might be to just let priests marry and get rid of the whole celibacy thing. And I think that would probably go a long way to remedying the situation, have family men act as priests or minister to the flock instead of cloistered, sexually repressed hermits or whatever. Although, you know, we shouldn't be too naive. Quote-unquote family men can be predators too. But I imagine opening up the priesthood to married people or people allowed to partake in healthy monogamous relationships probably would greatly reduce instances of this predatory aberrant behavior. There's also the idea of women priests or having nuns play a bigger role regarding duties or activities that involve interacting with minors. But then that brings to mind all those old stories of sadistic nuns wrapping people's knuckles with a ruler. And of course, women can technically be predators too. Perhaps not at the same rate or percentage as men. Uh, we're all probably familiar with all those whacked out teacher-student scandals that seem to pop up in the news with alarming regularity. But how realistic is it, though, the idea of letting priests marry? I, I don't know. Celibacy has been a mandatory part of the priesthood for centuries, and I think there's this whole mystique of the priest, this figure removed from normal society who, through his celibacy, is somehow more spiritually pure or closer to God. Myself being a non-believer who hasn't considered himself a practicing Catholic since probably at least my early teens, the change wouldn't bother me at all. Hey, anything that can help keep kids from being preyed upon. That should be the most important consideration. I just don't know how willing the church would be to try implementing such a change or how accepting the laity would be. But hey, worth a try, right? And I think the laity actually might be more receptive than we might think. I think many of them are probably themselves sick of being inundated with all these uh, abuse scandals and stories. But this whole thing got me thinking about the history of celibacy in the church, and I think I touched on the subject a long time ago. And it gets kind of confusing. When you ask when was it decided that priests had to be celibate, people often say that began in the 11th century when Pope Benedict VIII prohibited um, the children of priests from inheriting property. And then when a few decades later, Pope Gregory VII issued a decree forbidding clerical marriages. And that's all true, but you can go back as early as the 4th century with the Council of Elvira. Uh, not that Elvira, that's the one I had the crush on as a kid. Uh, Canon 33 of the Council of Elvira stated that all bishops, presbyters, and deacons, and all other clerics were to abstain completely from their wives and not to have children. Then um, a little later in 325, the Council of Nicaea, uh, convened by Constantine, actually kind of undid that and actually rejected a ban on priests marrying, uh, which was requested by Spanish clerics. The decrees issued in the 11th century forbidding clerical marriages and inheritances are sometimes viewed as a cynical attempt to keep wealth and property in the church instead of going to the children of priests or other clergy. And... Most likely this is at least in part true, but there is scriptural basis for the, uh, the encouragement of celibacy. And so I'm looking at Bible Hub, and there's Matthew 19.12, or as it, uh, it's kind of a funny abbreviation, Matt 19.12, and here's the uh, New American Standard Bible. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs, not eunuchs, but eunuchs, who were, who were made them, that was like an awful computer joke, who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And here's a little bit from Wikipedia regarding Corinthians 7.25. It says, Paul, within a context of having, quote-unquote, no command from the Lord, recommends celibacy but acknowledges that it is not God's gift to all within the church. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, Paul himself being celibate. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction." And just so I don't have to offer a clarification or correction next week, that was specifically from 1 Corinthians. What was it that Donald Trump said? 2 Corinthians or something like that? <laughs> I forget. And then while researching this, I was reading how um, some Bible scholars, including one of my favorites, uh, Bart Ehrman, um, actually think that celibacy was being encouraged, at least in part, in context of uh, what early Christians viewed as the imminent end of the age. And here's something from uh, 1 Corinthians again. This is 7, 29 through 31. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. And that brings to mind that pesky problem that uh, early Christians seem to have expected Jesus to return in their own lifetime, before the passing of the current generation. And, uh, you know, still waiting. But to end on a serious note, this whole continuing problem of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, it's, it's obviously sickening. And as a non-believer, if protecting kids meant folding up the whole Catholic Church and calling it a day, that would be fine with me. Just leave me some of the, the nice trappings like the, the stained glass, the flickering votive candles in a dark church, and uh, the Gregorian chant, you know. But I, I think religion seems to be insisting on a slow death, and I think it's going to be with us for a while. And uh, if, that's, if that big, slow, lumbering dinosaur, the Catholic Church, is going to continue existing before it eventually peters out, then something has to be done to protect kids. And really, there's two ongoing crimes here. There's this infestation 
of sexual predators in the Catholic Church preying on children. And then there's the cover-up, which I think makes the whole thing seem that much more stomach-churning. Or is it stomach-turning? Turning or churning? Yeah. I know I shouldn't be joking, but, uh, yeah, and really, sadly, it seems that even Pope Francis is complicit to some degree. And this really was a guy that Catholics, and even non-Catholics, I, I think uh, even some irreligious folks, tended to, to view favorably. But it seems he too is just, at the end of the day, part of the problem. Uh, what more can I say? I think I'll call this episode a wrap. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, you know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. If you want to support what I'm doing monetarily, uh, you can use the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page, or go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. I feel a little weird doing the shameless plugs after covering that heavy topic. But, uh, hey, um... You know, I lack the deep coffers of the Catholic Church, and I have a chihuahua to feed. Uh, But anyway, until next time, brothers and sisters.